My name is Clark Freilich. And I'm Clyde Gaw. And this is the Glocks Paper Scissors Podcast. In today's podcast, we will be joined by our special guest, Diane Jaquith. Diane Jaquith retired after 25 years from K-12 art education, is a co-founder of Teaching for Artistic Behavior, and directs the TAB Summer Teacher Institute. She is the co-author of Engaging Learners Through Art Making and co-editor of the Learning Directed Classroom. Diane is an adjunct faculty member at Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston. Hello, Diane. How are you? <laughs> we're, do- we're doing great. Where are you calling from today, Diane? I'm calling in from Walden, Massachusetts, which is a small city just west of, the, of Boston. Waltham, Massachusetts. That is right near Cambridge. And also, how far is that from Fenway in Boston? Not far from Fenway at all. And Massachusetts of College Art and Design is right near there also, isn't it? Yeah, I heard of them. I heard it's a good place. <laughs> so, Diane, could you tell us about how you got started with the idea or concept of teaching artistic behavior, the genesis of the whole idea? Um, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, when I got started, there was no tab. I was teaching on the North Shore, north of Boston, in a... In a um, small school, and I noticed that my students, I was like in my fourth year of teaching, and I noticed my elementary students were far more engaged in the little drawings they would do when they finished my fabulous projects. So we would have like a unit, and I'd spend, you know, three or four classes working on this one piece, and then if they finished that, they would go off and do some drawing, you know, the free draw thing, while everybody else finished up their work. But I started watching them, and I started realizing that they really liked those drawings much better than what they were doing with my project. And I got curious about that and why that was. Um, but I didn't know what to do with that. I just I was observing it. I noticed it. I believed it. But I didn't know where to go with that because all I knew was what I learned in art school, which you know was teacher-directed lessons. And, um, you know, I went to all the NAEA conferences, and that's what I was hearing there. There was a lot of DBAE going on. This was the early 90s. And that's all I knew. So I observed this. I noticed it. It bothered me, but I didn't know what to do next. The following year, and I met this woman named Pauline Joseph, who was teaching in my district. And she, we would have these department meetings, and everybody, it's a large district, so there were 15 elementary schools. And everybody was teaching, like I was teaching, you know, teacher-directed, except Pauline. And she would say, well, you know, um, I have choice-based centers, and my students choose what they're doing and how they're going to do it. And I thought, how does that work? Um, but I got, I got really curious about seeing how that would work, because it kind of sounded like the solution to the question I had about my students' engagement. So I got a little mini-grant to get two days release time, and I went over and spent two days in Pauline's classroom. And she had different studio centers, and the students were really clear on what their work was at those centers. It seemed very purposeful. 
And I thought, gee, you know, I think I could do this. So I went back and proposed it to my principal, and my principal was kind of skeptical because I was the new art teacher, and, you know, everybody, administrators still were skeptical, still kind of think art should be the way they, it was when they were in school. So anyway, long story short, I gradually implemented choices into my program. It took a while. I did it very slowly. And it wasn't until the following year, probably around 1998, 97, 98, that I met Kathy Douglas. And Kathy and Pauline, along with John Crow, were uh, teaching class at Massachusetts College of Art, oh, teaching for artistic behavior. That was the name of the course they were teaching, and it was about how to, how to teach with choice. So I met Kathy, and we hit it off, and we, I went, I remember going to her presentation in New Orleans, um, way back, and just really, really, really um, connecting with what she had to say, which is the same exact message she says now, some 20 years later, um, that the child is the artist, and it really resonated with me. So in the following years, you know, in the early 2000s, Kathy and I started doing presentations together at NAEA and um, started developing some kind of network, and again, you know, this is internet just kind of getting rolling with everybody and some people were more capable with it than others but we started using social media and NAEA to start launching um, a campaign to find out if there were other teachers out there who also wanted to do this or were already doing this and that's sort of how it all started so the teaching for artistic behavior group was actually founded in I want to say 2001 or 2002 the NAEA conferences, but Kathy, it's really important to note that Kathy and Pauline had been doing this, and John Crow had been doing this since the early 1970s, so it wasn't a new idea, it just had a new name. That's that's our recollection, too. We, we remember um, 2001 is the, the year that uh, its uh, tab is officially begun by you and Kathy. It continues to grow. It really begins... In, in Massachusetts as a uh, alternative to DBAE. And That's correct. And DBAE was kind of on its way out then. I know, I think it's come back a little in the, in the time since, but it was on its way out. I think Elliot Eisner had already said, you know, this was a mistake. I regret this. Um, but there wasn't something new. There was nothing new coming down the pike from art education, from NAEA or, or the um, colleges to replace DBAE, so people were kind of left adrift at that time. I can I can remember a disagreement between Elliot Eisner and uh, uh, Lanny Duke of the Getty Foundation uh, at the Washington NAEA uh, National Conference at Washington D.C. And as a, as just a, a young art teacher, I was trying to figure out what was going on. And then later on, uh, after Clark introduced me to these up-and-coming educators in Massachusetts, then, then I began to put things together and put it into perspective. So another piece of my background that's a little different than other people who were working with TAB at the very beginning is that when I went to, I did my graduate work at Mass College of Art, and I worked, my graduate advisor was Abigail Hausman who was at the time developing the visual thinking strategies that comes directly out of her research and her doctoral thesis called The Eye of the Beholder. So I became one of her research associates and um, 
visual thinking strategies looks at the aesthetic stage development of individuals. So she was a, she was a cognitive psychologist, and she was very involved in the stage developmental stage theory. So this was my training before I got into. Actually, I was doing this before I was an art teacher, and then I kept, I kept working with her for a few years until after I got hired as an art teacher. But it had a huge influence on my outlook on this whole idea of student engagement because I knew that you couldn't engage learners if they didn't really understand what they were doing or they didn't connect with what they were doing. Right. And you had to meet them wherever, whatever stage they were at. And so by imposing my, what I thought was a great lesson on these kids that oftentimes really didn't connect with much of anything in their lives, um, there wasn't a whole lot of incentive for them to engage with it. So that was kind of my background. And then I was working with Abigail and Philip Yenneline when they, when they actually created the um, view, the Visual Understanding and Education Group. I saw the steps that they took to kind of develop this, this group and this, this theory. And a lot of the theories are very similar to TAP, which is, you know, it's just developmental and meeting people where they are. Uh-huh. And it had a huge influence on us as we started thinking about how we would organize the TAP group. So, Diane, did you, you know, early on, and you had this this idea of teaching for artistic behavior, and it started growing small at first. Did you have any pushback from colleagues, from universities, from in that small pocket in, in around Boston? But oh yeah, we um, initially we had a lot of pushback. NAEA, uh, I want to say they tolerated us at first because they didn't really know what. But we were, you know, they didn't really know what the, the total concept was. They, so, so we got sessions. We got, you know, we were, and what we would do is um, we decided that what would be convincing would be to see students' artwork because we knew that when we exhibited students' artwork in our schools with the artist statements attached, it really drew in, drew in an audience. And they really got it. They looked at the artwork, they read the statements, and they go, okay, now I get it. Now I get why it's important for kids to... Direct their own art making. So we would go to NAEA and we got permission from them to bring in um, bulletin boards and actually do an exhibit right in the registration area. So we did this for a number of years. I think we did it, you know, like maybe three or four years in a row, where we would just put up a big display along with the local associations. And it wasn't in the vendors' area, it was in the registration area. But we paid for the boards, and we displayed kids' art. We collected art from people from around the country and did a display and really um, generated a lot of interest for our presentations and for our, you know, our ideas. So that was, you know, one of the initial things that we did. Um, we had a lot of people, rarely would they confront us, and occasionally in a session, we would get people that were a little bit, you know, it was always the same questions. What about the standards? Or what about this? Or what about that? And, you know, the standards are embedded in everything we do, just as they're embedded in any good art program. We did get some pushback from people at universities who, I think it was just hard to, to understand why you wouldn't want to control all the pieces, control the learning, that, that you would just let the child control the learning, which is kind of what we do. You know, we let the child choose the direction of their learning and go deep with it, and if they get stuck somewhere, we're right there to do an intervention to help them resolve it. But some people accuse us of um, actually ruining art education because 
teachers would no longer be necessary. And teachers are always necessary. Teachers are always there to act as facilitators and guides and mentors and, and the like. So there was a lot of pushback initially. And then gradually, you know, over the next five years, um, it started to become a thing. And that was really cool to see. It started to, and, we, we had some, and then we had the book out in 2009, and then we, we definitely had an audience as a result. Yeah, the, the idea, I, I think some people um, <clears throat> misinterpret TAB. They think that, as you mentioned, you know, it's a good point. They think that the teacher is uh, not a part of the entire process. Nothing could be further from the, from the truth. Uh, the teacher's integral uh, in uh, orchestrating all the kinds of activities, the cornucopia of art experience that takes place inside of a tab classroom all dependent on the you know uh, much of it dependent on how the teacher sets up the room how the teacher develops culture within the room how the teacher authorizes children to uh, express their ideas uh, materials that are offered uh, the 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 way the teacher segues from a whole group lesson to a small group lesson and into an individual lesson. The teacher is, is so important in a TAB classroom. So, Diane, I'm just curious. In, in the last few years, we've had a movement not just in art, but with the maker movement and other entities recognizing how important it is for the child to be in charge of their learning, and especially with the maker movement, which is very similar how TAB is set up, where children are choosing their own ideas and using materials and producing those. And it seems like the world is now noticing what you and Kathy and John Crow and uh, Pauline knew all along, where the power of learning was. Do you ever pinch yourself, look at yourself in the mirror and say, ha, I knew it, told you so. Because, you know... It's embedded in our culture now, and as someone um, less digitally motivated than, than some of my younger colleagues, um, I get that, I respect it, I don't always understand it, but I saw more and more that my students, you know, the more digital pieces I could lay into my program, the more hooked they became, and I, I, I do respect that, I do respect, and I don't mean that you have to have a lot of bells and whistles, you certainly don't. But I respect that it's, it's a culture that is very different from when I first started teaching. And the children that we have in front of us are very different from the children that we had 25 years ago. And we have to keep up with that. And we have to match that. And I think one of the ways to do that is by showing them examples of contemporary art. They really connect with that. They connect with the um, goals of the contemporary artists. And connect with the contemporary movements like the maker, the maker movement, and things like that. So I think it's recognizing these things, never saying that there's no room for art, only keeping art at the forefront, but recognizing these other other pieces and incorporating them into the art program, so that we are really raising kids who are ready to to be innovative thinkers on their own. Absolutely. Teaching for Artistic Behavior has grown immensely. Clyde and I and, and you were just discussing how many members we had on the group, and we're just about uh, right at the precipice of 5,000 and how big it's grown over the past couple of years 
How do you think your vision as far as that group is holding up? Um, yeah, we're seeing so many teachers coming to TAB now because it does make sense to them and it does connect with the other things they're teaching. And the model also works really well with the kinds of schedules that teachers now face. You know, some, a lot of teachers I know have six different grade levels in one day. That's a lot of fancy footwork if you're trying to um, use art materials that are consumable and get things changed up. Whereas if you have studio centers set up and students are trained with how to work with these centers and how to find their materials and work and then put everything away, it makes a schedule like that work so much better. Or if you have a very tight budget or if you have, um, you know, all kinds of issues that the teachers now face with their schools. Um, the vision is really pure. It's very simple. Um, thanks to Kathy Douglas, who keeps everything as simple as possible. So, you know, with comes down to the three sentence curriculum. What do artists do? The child is the artist, and the art room is the child's studio. And everything should should tap back to those three principles. And what we're seeing is that sometimes teachers, in their, in their excitedness of this all, try to make it too complicated. Don't make it complicated. Keep everything simple, because the simpler it is, the clearer it's going to be to kids. And that's, that's the bottom line. Absolutely. Do you see any uh, obstacles that might play out in the future? Something that we haven't already thought of or something that might uh, derail some of this other than the obvious of the reliance on high-stakes testing? And Yeah. I mean, you're going to always have certain constraints placed on you if you're a teacher. And, you know, some of these are workable and some of them aren't. So you find out what those constraints are and you kind of push those boundaries so you know where, you know, where you're, where, where you have as much influence as possible. Right. Um, the, for, you know, those obstacles, you can't, you know, you, 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 you can't always do anything about a bad schedule. You know, sometimes you just have to learn to live with it and, and do the best you can. But again, I'm just going to go back to the whole idea of the, keeping things simple. We're seeing people come on now who want to um, muck it up a little by, you know, you know, giving kids badges and, you know, you don't need to do that. You don't need to give them external rewards for doing work that they love doing. They really don't need that. And they probably don't really want it. They don't know they don't want it, but they really don't want it. It just complicates things for them and it complicates things for the teacher. And it adds another layer of control that the teacher is holding on to. So... Um, I think teachers need to learn to be really honest with themselves and say to themselves, whose agenda is this? Is this the kid's agenda or my agenda? Yeah. And if it's my agenda, why am I, you know, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because it's required by my job, in which case you really have no choice? Or am I doing it because I'm a little afraid to let go of this piece? And quite often it's the latter. And, you know, you let go if it works. Great. If it doesn't work, then you, you know, you reevaluate and try it again a different way. But, um, the other thing that I just wanted to mention is, is, you know, the other thing we're seeing a lot of is this control through what people are looking at is the WOW project. And, you know, WOW stands for original work. It, it was came out of the classroom in Maine, Bart Berry's classroom in Maine, middle school classroom, because she was noticing middle school kids were not as engaged as she needed them to be and the learning that she, her learning outcomes were not being met. So she created these WOW projects to give kids a focus and spend time 
with a particular media or a particular concept with a focus. That was from middle school. I used it with my fifth graders and occasionally with my fourth graders. And I used it so that they would they would commit to spending four weeks at one studio center. That was the idea that there was going to be a finished product at the end, but with the idea that they would get really good at those skills. And they could then teach other kids those skills. They could come back to that center and really know it inside out. It was never with the intent of, in my case, with the intent of a product. But a lot of teachers we see are using the wild concept to create products. And this is not a product-based pedagogy. It's a process-based pedagogy. Right. So um, we shouldn't be seeing these wild projects happening, certainly not below grade four, ever. Right. You know, I I played around with the wild project myself, and it was they were trying to come up with a wild project, but they... You know, just the fact that it was a wild project was putting a lot of pressure on them to produce a, a piece of art or a, a piece of work. And so I, I do not use it anymore and got rid of any reference to a wild piece. And, uh, you know, I still have kids ask me about it. I said, no. So I just basically do art shows now. That's what we do. We have an art show coming up in December. And I just I said, here, we're having an art show in December. What are you going to give me? You know, and I'm not even requiring everyone to do it. If they don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. So, but kids are motivated by a lot of different things. And I don't want to be that motivation. I want them to have the motivation, the internal motivation to produce. Right. And we don't um, give enough credit to the time that kids need to practice skills and practice making and practice doing things. I mean, most of math classes practice. It's not, you know, math class is not a final test degree week. Um, English class is oftentimes practice worksheets and practice writing and practice reading and practice, practice, practice. Why do we have this expectation that everything kids do in our class is going to be like a finished exhibit quality piece of work? It shouldn't be. We shouldn't be putting that kind of pressure on kids. And there's no reason for it. Um, They should just be practicing these skills. And every once in a while, something's going to come out that's really great. And... Um, and that's all. That's, that's good. That's wonderful. Right. That's the uh, the observation Clark and I were were uh, discussing uh, in an earlier uh, podcast uh, was that uh, children uh, in a classroom uh, vary from uh, capacity level and developmental levels. Um, you have some children who require more time and thought. And conceptual practicing, conceptual thinking, and and uh, or just incubation. Uh, there's a term from Nan Hathaway, you know, inc- incubating an an idea or a feeling, and that leads to an idea. And uh, and and maybe just having a child be in the classroom for a, an extended period of time, and developing the the confidence to then begin making art. Exactly. A lot of it is just building up confidence. You know, we hear people say, my kids don't have any ideas. They have ideas. They just don't know those ideas are artworthy. And really, any idea is artworthy, as we know. But the kids don't always know that. So it's building up the confidence and building up the skills and giving them lots, lots of opportunities to practice the skills, especially the skills of what they really want to be able to do and not making them devote a tremendous amount of time to on skills of things they're never inclined to do. So you have kids who love fiber art and get really good at it, and you have kids that that doesn't interest them. You have 3D thinkers who just want to construct, and they get really, really good at it because this is what they value. And then we have 2D thinkers 
who really don't want to make anything 3D. So it's finding what each kid's interests are and helping them to be the best they can at whatever it is they're really interested in pursuing. You, you always make the good point about time, how much time the children get to spend in our class as, a, you know, as opposed to the rest of the, uh, their, their schedule. And so offering them choices uh, is, a, is a good thing for them so that they can really focus on their ideas. Yeah, I think every elementary, usually elementary and middle school especially, um, I think less so at the high school level, but elementary and middle school teachers should count up the number of actual hours a year that their kids are in front of them in the classroom because administrators never understand this. They don't understand that we see kids typically 20 to 30 hours a year. Right. A year, and then, and then there's this expectation of all this accountability that you would ask of a teacher who's seeing kids for 10 hours a week, you know, right. 20 hours a week. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Once you, we point that out to them, it really changes how they see what we do. Yeah, I did that with my principal last year. I was like, I have 27 and a half hours that I see the kids, and that's it. And she looked at me, and she didn't believe me, and she had to go yeah. um, <clears throat> add it up, and she was, like, dumbfounded. Yeah, it's been, uh, they so many, and I don't fault them. They have so many other things that they have to keep track of. So it's really good to advocate for your program by saying, look, these are the hours that I have. These are the hours that kids have a year with art. And we want to make every single minute worth their time. Right. And so you, you advocate for what you want to do. High school is a little bit different, and I, I would think uh, middle school definitely different because uh, there are more concentrated um, periods of time that the kids spend in the art room. But you run into a different set of problems uh, with respect to uh, children feeling pressure from uh, their other, uh, from the, the workload that they have. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, from a mental standpoint, they're not always clicking on all cylinders when they come into the, into the high school tab art room. But uh, that's a discussion point for another episode, uh, is the pressure that's placed on kids when they come into your, after they, the, the art room becomes the favorite place in the school for many children because it's, it's a place for them to decompress. Right. It's a, safe, it's a safe zone for them, for many kids. And we have to protect that and protect their rights to that. Because, yeah. you know, that time, that time can disappear really easily. You have to be on top of it all the time. Right. So, Diane, you and Kathy and others hold a, the TAB Summer Institute. I know it's extremely popular. Could you kind of uh, talk about what that is and how people can get involved? Sure, sure. So we are coming up on our fifth tab, Summer Institute for Teachers, and it runs at Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston. This summer dates are July 8 to 14. Um, we're adding, we're going from Sunday night to Saturday morning, and we have, typically we have about 60 people attend from around the country. Last year we had four people come from beyond the U.S., which is very exciting for us. We bring in TAB experts like Kathy Douglas and Ian Sands and Clyde Gaw and Julie Toole and Ann Hathaway. And we work with both beginning TAB teachers and experienced TAB teachers to uh, give them the tools they need to teach for artistic behavior. So it's, it's a really fun group. It's a very intense week. 
Um, this summer, I think we're going to be having a studio um, theme for the week. So it'll be it'll be the pedagogy, but then we'll be putting all of that into studio settings every afternoon. So it um, so it's, I think it's going to be a really fun week. Well, I know that everyone who's ever attended it has always had really positive things to say about it. I myself have never attended, but hopefully someday I will. We'll get you out one of these days, definitely. Yeah, once my kids get out of college. <laughs> Clark and I have a we have a, a little side project with Julie Toole and Lisa Lisa Van Plus Sid and Candy Paul Price, and that has just taken off like crazy. And that's something that uh, uh, is called Tabstock. Yeah, we need to get Diane or Kathy in there, too. <laughs> of course, Tabstock, uh, a, a wonderful professional development uh, event, uh, has its roots in something else that was taking place in Massachusetts in the summertime uh, that was uh, started by you and Kathy and John Crow. The summer gatherings. Right. We did these summer gatherings, and actually now they moved into the fall and winter in schools. So um, we do this. Um, in New England, we do one usually around MLK weekend. There's a group in Colorado. I'm going to be out there this year for the MLK weekend. They do a they do a big weekend tab um, conference, and then there are groups around the country that create smaller gatherings. And I know there's a group in New Mexico that meets in Santa Fe, and groups in the southeast, and groups in St. Louis, and I think from Chicago. You know, so there's there's definite interest around the country. And this is a chance for teachers to really work together to develop understandings around the, the um, tab pedagogy and, and just best ways, best approaches to working with students in a, in a learner-directed environment. Right. I, I hear you're working on a, a project that's coming out pretty soon. Um, I've been working on two projects that are coming out pretty soon. The first one, Kathy and I have just finished up a revised version of the um, Engaging Learners Through Art Making. And so this book is pretty much, it's pretty much an entirely new book. Wow. With um, contributions from so many art teachers. So it's really, really rich with lots of examples, lots of in-class examples, with new strategies, assessments, sample lesson plans, advocacy tips for those starting out. That's going to be out in March. And then the other project I'm working on is an elementary version of Studio Thinking. And oh. I'm doing that with Jill Bogan, Lois Hetland, and Ellen Winter. Wow. And we're, we're almost done. We're, we're wrapping it up pretty soon, and that should probably be out by next summer. So all those teachers out there who love Studio Thinking and have tried to bring it down to an elementary level, um, this book's going to have a lot of resources for you to help you with that work. Great. I appreciate that immensely. <laughs> well, Diane, um, I want to thank you so much for calling today. It's always an honor to talk with you. We've surely enjoyed it. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. I always love to talk, Tab, and I really appreciate the opportunity. I also want to wish you and your family a fabulous Thanksgiving holiday. And no talk, Tab talk at the Thanksgiving dinner table, okay? <laughs> well, it's better than politics. <laughs> All right, Diane. We'll talk to you later. Thank you, Diane. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was awesome. That was an amazing conversation. Fantastic conversation yeah. with Diane. I know we could spend hours talking, I mean, talking tab 
with her and we didn't we didn't even ask Diane about Lucky Town. One of her oh, I one of, about remember Lucky, Lucky Town? Town? Yeah, I remember and you and I did Lucky Town. We did time. our <laughs> versions of Lucky Town after we saw what Diane did. She took over her whole school with Lucky Town. Right. When when the the art teacher takes over the school with the art project, you know that uh, and the kids are into it as much as as much as what happened when we did our versions right. um, and what we saw what Diane did. You know you have something special. Yeah, it's just very inspiring. Well, that's just about going to wrap up this episode. Is there anything else you want to say? Want to add anything? Um, looking forward to our next podcast. You and I are going to talk about our very favorite subject. It's a big subject. Creativity is hot stuff. Yeah. And, and we'll you- just probably just be hitting the surface. So we'll come up with some some good questions to talk about. And then cover those, and then we could always come back to it. Absolutely. Just a reminder to our listeners, if you have a question or topic you'd like Clyde or me to discuss, just email it to us at seagaw at newpal.k12.in.us. If you want, you can record your question and we'll play it on the podcast. This podcast is now available on iTunes, so if you like what you hear, Please subscribe and review our podcast. Thank you for listening to Blocks, Paper, Scissors podcast. And remember, never say oops, always say ah, ah. interesting.